Today on Cross Defense, a bunch of dead theologians and one dead president talk to us about what it means to be a man in the arena. We just celebrated Thanksgiving in America, which means a lot of us here kept a false peace with our family members instead of taking the opportunity presented to us to love them with the law and gospel of God's word rightly distinguished. Are you ready to hear from Roosevelt, Schaefer, Lewis, Machen, Luther, Walther, and Bonhoeffer? <laughs> well, they all have something to say to us today, so let's get into it right now. Welcome to Cross Defense. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where truth be told, well, I've been on vacation for the past week. If during the course of the show you'd want to drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you, friend. So go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact to send us your questions, your comments, or your biblical bits of brilliance. That's stmarksferndale.com slash contact. Okay, so for all of us American listeners here at Cross Defense, for all of you, I mean, I'm listening too, but I'm kind of also speaking. So for all of you American listeners, I pray that you had a blessed Thanksgiving and that you've resisted the insane launch into consumerism that has come to follow our National Day of Gratitude to God for all of his first article gifts. So let me ask you, how did your family gathering go? Did you have an opportunity on Thanksgiving to, to share the truth of Christianity with your family and friends? Did you bite your tongue, perhaps, to keep the familial false peace, which with each passing year seems to be getting further and further away from concord, right? Away from biblical unity that we used to have in this once Christian culture, nation. Many who used to be Christians are now sitting at your dinner table, non-Christians. So what a prime opportunity this presents to us on Thanksgiving to glorify the name of Jesus to speak the truth of Christ to our neighbors, which does indeed oftentimes mean that we have to start with the law because they don't want to admit they're sinners and they don't want to admit that there is a God. We've got to start with that, don't we? Did you shy away, my friends, from making your leftist family and friends uncomfortable by minimizing conversation about Christian pilgrims and their, their Christian God and the historic uh, nature of our, our, our nation's Christian culture? Did you shy away from all those topics? Did you find yourself thinking, oh, no, this, this isn't the time. It's a peaceful family dinner today. The family didn't get together to talk religion, but to watch some football and, and eat some good food. Now it's not the time. No, no. Maybe you didn't catch last week's show where we quoted from Luke 12, 51 to 53, where Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, then my friends, today's show is just what you need to hear to awake from your slumber and to repent of your desire to be a Pharisee. We all need a good kick in the pants every once in a while, don't we? We do. I mean, why else would Paul tell us not to grow weary of doing good? For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. See, we're prone. We're prone to growing weary of fighting the good fight of faith. We'd just soon give up and watch the game in a, in a turkey-induced coma, wouldn't we? So let's start, not with a dead theologian, not with a dead Lutheran theologian even, but a dead American president. Are you familiar with President Theodore Roosevelt's 
famous speech, the man in the arena. Maybe it's just man in the arena. However that goes. Here's what it says. It's not the critic who counts. Not the one who points out how the strong man stumbled or how the doer of deeds might have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who, if he wins, knows the triumph of high achievement, and who, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I'm of the mind, and my sincerest apologies to all of our non-American listeners, but, but I'm of the mind that American Christians of all peoples have a particular pedigree that should lend itself to speaking the truth about God without reservation. And so, of all peoples, when we don't, we bear a greater degree of shame. And it gets worse when we ratchet in our focus, we take our conversation, and we we zero in on men, guys, dads, grandpas, men. Do you know that you are today you are the critic in Teddy's speech. You're sitting there on your couch pointing out how the strong athlete stumbled over this or that or could have done better. You delight in armchair quarterbacking. It's part of our American culture today because the critic's life is all that we know. We're a society of critics who get none of the credit of the strong man in the arena. We're voyeurs watching other people engage in the contest. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. But that's not us. We ought to strive to be that man. We ought to strive not to be on the sidelines, but to be the player in the game. What does it say about us today that we've developed an, an actual culture of watching what we're interested in rather than doing it ourselves. We would rather watch videos on YouTube about how to take good photographs than to actually go out there and experiment and to take good photographs or whatever the case may be. We get stuck in the voyeurism, in the watching of it, in the criticizing, well, he could have done that better or he could have done this better or that's not quite as good as it could be. We want to talk about it but we never actually want to get into it. So we talk to her blue in the face about the decline of the Christian culture, and we could we critique so-and-so and such-and-such, and such, but we never actually get into the fray ourselves. The man who's actually in the arena, valiantly attempting to engage the wayward with truth, even though it could, it could very well mean failure. It could mean familial fallout if he fails no more peace around the dinner table at least the person trying he will fail while daring greatly and for our conversation he fails while daring greatly to save a soul could there be a greater effort a greater cause to strive for what does james 5:20 say Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And on that note, let's actually hear from a dead theologian on the subject of being men in the arena of truth, trying to teach our family and our friends what God says so that none would perish, but they would, they would all instead reach repentance and live. I'm talking about the evangelism arena spreading the truth to those in our lives, those whom God has planted in our spheres of influence. 
Now, with respect to this evangelism arena, Francis Schaeffer, he said, we confront men with reality. We remove their protection and their escapes, and we allow the avalanches to fall. If they don't become Christians, then indeed it's true. They are in a worse state than before we spoke to them. We're taking off their roofs, guys. We're exposing them. Do we do this? Is this your experience with Christian evangelism? Because it's not what I see happening, by and large. I see Christians, I see pastors, armchair quarterbacking everything, afraid to actually confront their neighbors with reality, afraid to leave people in a worse state in order to snatch some of the people out of the fire. In fact, they call it unloving to consider leaving someone worse than they found them. But that's not biblical. And that's not what the Orthodox teachers of the past would have to say about it. No. What do we read in the book of Jude, verse 17 to 23? But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Schaefer makes his bold claim of of actually caring about his fellow human beings enough to be in the arena with them in his book, The God Who Is There, which already in the title nails the problem with Western Christianity, doesn't it? We don't, at least practically speaking, believe God is actually there, do we? He's not in our lives the same way the Uber driver is, and so we live lives of hypocrisy. How refreshing it is to hear that Schaefer was willing to leave people worse for wear if it meant he could tell them the truth. He expounds upon his audacity, saying, how dare we deal with men this way? And he's not asking that rhetorically. He's quick to give the answer to that question. He dares to leave people worse off only, he says, for one reason. Because Christianity is truth. (laughs) What a novel concept, yeah? We actually have the truth and others don't. I know that's not a popular thing to say. It's scandalous. But it's true. We have the truth and others don't. Not every road leads to Rome, and and your mileage may not always vary. Sometimes you just got a flat. The question that we ought to be reflecting on is do we want to share the truth with our neighbors, or do we want to let them rot in hell for eternity? That's quite the question. Our adoption of well, to use Roosevelt's verbiage, the disposition of a critic instead of a man in the arena, becoming the critic, being the critic, staying away from being formed into the man in the arena, it does a disservice to our neighbors, dear Christians. Nice guys those Christians are. They have that life-saving truth. They're the only ones with it, and they're keeping it to themselves. Swell fellas. What's worse is why we keep it to ourselves. It's, it's not because we're stingy and we want to hoard it like it's the last little bit of the candy in the drawer or something. But it's one of two things as I see it. Either because we don't actually believe what we say we believe. So 
for hypocrisy's sake, or this to me is the only other answer, or we're cowards. We're afraid to be the man in the arena. We're afraid that we might fail, that there might be fallout. We're afraid that it might actually be uncomfortable to fight the good fight of faith. What is it that C.S. Lewis said? In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and we demand the function. Oh, that's kind of timely for our trans culture. We make men without chests, he says, and we expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. So all that is to say, we've turned our men, our Christians, into critics. And we wonder why none of them are in the arena. We train them to be armchair quarterbacks and are shocked when they're unwilling to run the Jesus ball into the end zone with their own family, no doubt, with their own friends, their own people. Not asking them to do it among strangers, not asking them to do it for everybody in the world, just among those God has put in your life. But someone might get upset, Pastor. Yeah, you're right. And someone might actually be saved from eternal death. That's the risk. No doubt about it. If your running back is going to punch through the line to make the touchdown, he might get tackled. He might even fumble the ball. All kinds of things could happen. Jesus promises. He promises that families will be divided over him. But does that mean we just give up? Forfeit the game? Don't play? Does that mean we just quit and walk away? It's a two-minute drill. What are we going to do, just kneel the ball all the time? I don't think so. Let's take a break right now. We'll come back and we'll continue this conversation. We're going to hear from Jay Gresham Machen and then more from Schaefer as well. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross Defense. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Cross Defense, and no, absolutely not. We do not ever, ever kneel on the ball. We run the risk. We run at the score, even. We take the chances. We put the ball in the end zone time and time and time again. We are to be the man in the arena, to use President Roosevelt's language. Now, Jay Gresham Machen, who you may or may not know, in his fight against the rise of liberalism that came in the, into the church in the early 1900s, he addressed the argument that we probably would call keeping the peace today. If we were going to label the argument, we call it keeping the peace. If you listen to the introduction of his book, Christianity and Liberalism, this is what you'll hear. The purpose of this book, he says, is not to decide the religious issue of the present day. Okay, so what is the purpose? But merely to present the issue as sharply and clearly as possible in order that the reader may be aided in deciding it for himself. Presenting an issue sharply is indeed, he says, by no means a popular business at the present time. There are many who prefer to fight their intellectual battles in what is aptly called a, quote, condition of low visibility. Clear-cut definition of terms in religious matters, Machen says, bold-facing of the logical implications of religious views is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding. 
But, he continues, with such persons we cannot possibly bring ourselves to agree. Light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it's always beneficial in the end. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. What then are we confessing when we are unwilling, dear saints, to fight about the truth of Christ with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends? It was the rise of liberalism in the 20th century church that no doubt created the idea of not talking about religion in mixed company. You've heard this, right? Because it's not polite. You don't talk about religion and politics. Uh, No, that's not right. That's actually false. No, it's not polite. That's true. Fighting isn't a civilized affair. But are we called to be polite or are we called to fight? What do we read in 1 Timothy 6.12? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are to live as Christians, and if that isn't polite in a pagan culture, well then, it's up to them, the man, the others, to judge for themselves whether what we do is polite or not, whether it's good or not, whether it's right or not. As for us, we will continue to confess before many witnesses the truth of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, which means we must also declare that people are sinners. That requires the law. Faithful Christians were waging war in the early 1900s against that very same sentiment that we now take for granted as the proper way of conducting ourselves when we're breaking bread with non-believers at Thanksgiving or whenever. Oh, keep it nice, keep it pleasant, keep it peaceful. Watch the Detroit Lions, watch the Dallas Cowboys, you know, eat your turkey, come back for seconds, don't ever talk about God. Not even on a day set aside to thank him. Okay, so now let's hear more from Francis Schaeffer. He's got a lot more to say about possessing the truth and what that means for being men in the arena. We're merging Roosevelt's language with Schaeffer's point. If we are not functioning in the area that Christianity is absolute truth, such evangelism is cruel. What's he talking about again? He's talking about taking the roof off and exposing people to, to the the falling of their worldview and and the destruction that would ultimately come in hell if they don't repent, right? So if we're not functioning in the area that Christianity is absolute truth, well then yes, Schaefer says, this sort of evangelism is cruel beyond measure. The sharp and bold willingness to leave people worse off than before, it's cruel. But he says, If this is truth, if it is true that this man before me who I'm speaking to at the Thanksgiving dinner is separated from God and he's lost both now and for eternity, then even though in individual cases, in some cases, somebody may not accept Christ and that man may be left worse off than he was before we began, well, nevertheless, Schaefer says, I have to have the courage to speak. If there is a thesis, there is an antithesis. If there is that which is true, truth, there is that which is error. If there is true Christian salvation, then there is lostness. There is no salvation. Hell. When I began to approach individuals in this way, Schaefer says, Some years ago now, my wife said to me, 
aren't you afraid that someone will commit suicide one day? And since then, oh, this is crazy. He says, since then, we have had one girl who tried to do this. Fortunately, she didn't die. And later on, she made a profession of faith. But even if she had succeeded in her suicide, after walking in the mountains and crying before God, I would have begun the same way with the next person who came. We cannot do this, he says, until we have personally faced the question as to whether the Judeo-Christian system is true in the way we have been speaking of truth. When we're certain about this for ourselves, then if we love men, we shall have the courage to lift the roof off other people's lives and expose them to the collapse of their defenses. We ourselves, as we face these people, must have the integrity to continue to live open to the questions, does God exist? Is the content of the Judeo-Christian system truth? The more comprehending we are as we take the roof off, the worse the man will feel if he rejects the Christian answer. In a fallen world, we must be willing to face the fact that however lovingly we preach the gospel, if a man rejects it, he will be miserable. It's dark out there. Schaefer says, I think one reason I'm able to talk to this kind of 20th century person is because I understand something of just how dark it can be. Let's stop for a second because... Don't you also understand in this 21st century context how dark it is out there? Schaefer continues, Men must know that with integrity we have faced the reality of the dark path they are now treading. There is no romanticism, he says, as one seeks to move a man in the direction of honesty. On the basis of his system, you are pushing him further and further towards that which is not only totally against God, but also against himself. You're pushing him out of the real universe. Of course it hurts. Of course it's dark in the place where a man, in order to be consistent to his non-Christian presuppositions, must deny what is there in this life as well as in the next. Often, it takes much more time to press him towards the logical conclusion of his position than it does later to give him the answer. Luther, Schaefer says, spoke of the law and the gospel. And the law, the need, must always be adequately clear first. Then one can give the Christian answer, the gospel, because he knows his need for something. And one can tell him what his deadness really is and the solution in the total structure of truth. Now, dear saints, cross-defense listeners, you may know this too. I hope you do. The American Luther, no, 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 not Martin Luther King Jr., but C.F.W. Walther gave us, through his lectures at the seminary, an entire book on this aspect of the proper distinction between the law and and the gospel. Thesis 6 in the long gospel. Thesis 6 is what Schaefer picked up from Luther. It reads, you're not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you do not preach the law in its full sternness and the gospel in its full sweetness. Similarly, do not mingle gospel elements with the law or law elements with the gospel. Obviously, Walther was speaking to preachers, but the principle here, guys, applies to every single Christian as we are all speakers of truth called to speak the good news of Jesus to our neighbors in our lives according to our vocations, yeah? Which includes Thanksgiving dinner or whenever else 
God gives you an opportunity. Walther agrees with what Schaefer and Machen say regarding getting in the arena and speaking the truth for the sake of our neighbor's souls. Walther says no gospel element, then, must be mingled with the law. Anyone explaining the law shamefully corrupts it if he adds grace to it. The grace, loving kindness, and patience of God who forgives sin. A preacher must proclaim the law in such a way, without those things in there, that nothing in it is pleasant for us who are lost and condemned as sinners. Any sweet ingredient injected into the law is poison. It renders this heavenly medicine, yes, the law is medicine, it's the scalpel that the surgeon uses to cut open your heart. It renders it inactive, he says. It neutralizes its effectiveness. The Lord says in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whenever you preach the law, Walther says, you must always bear in mind that it makes no concessions. That would be completely contrary to the character of the law because the law makes only demands. Now, all of this, dear Christian, all of it is the practical guidance you've been waiting for so that you can get off the couch and get into the arena. Take what Walther says here and, and apply it to your own vocational confession of truth. This is training, guys. This is training for the next opportunity the Lord gives you to love your family and friends by snatching them out of the fire. This is training for how you can save those wandering souls. You can bring them back. Yes, even at your own dinner table. Christmas is coming. You had another opportunity already loaded up in the hopper. Get ready. It's great. Walther quotes Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then, Walther says, if you direct people to do good works, and just for their comfort, you add a remark such as, you should indeed be perfect. Yet, God doesn't demand the impossible from us. Do what you can in your weakness. Just, just be sincere in your intention. Walther says, I say, if you were to speak like this, you would be preaching a damnable doctrine. For that is a shameful corruption of the law. And then he adds, quite succinctly, God never spoke like that from Mount Sinai where he gave us the law. Now, last week, we spent a, quite a bit of time talking about the pneuma, the spirit, right? Well, listen here to what Walther says after citing Romans 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So here you go, guys. When a minister preaches the law, he must by all means bear in mind that the law is spiritual. It works on the spirit, not on some part of the body. It's directed to the spirit in humans, to their will, their heart, their affections. And that is always the case. 
Let's take a break right here. Then we come back. We'll get some more from Walter. And again, all of this is to train us and teach us, equip our minds in how we can better serve our dearest loved ones in opportunities such as we just had with Thanksgiving. But anytime we're gathering with our friends and family. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. We will be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back, dear friends. And why is it? Why are we zeroing in on the sternness of the law today in this show? There's certainly the sweetness of the gospel too, right? Absolutely there is. But it's the law. It's the law that prepares the way for the gospel. Just as we talked about earlier, it is medicine. It is is the scalpel in the great physician's hand, and it cuts open your heart for the sake of the gospel, to stitch you back up, to make you well. So it exposes your sin, it removes that sin, or enables you to confront that sin, I should say, so that the the gospel of Jesus Christ can remove that sin. So we got to focus on the law, especially in our day and age, in our culture, because when we're considering our engagement in the arena, We're talking about trying to bring wandering sinners back to the Lord or to the Lord at all. And we hear, oh, so often we hear that we need to bring them the gospel. But not until they've heard the law. We omit this part. We forget it or just want to overlook it on purpose. The law needs to cut so that the gospel can heal. No law, well, how's the gospel supposed to do its work? This is what Schaefer is talking about when he speaks of being willing to leave someone worse off than they were before. So are you willing to speak frankly with your loved ones that they would have to truly contend with their sins? That's the question for us to wrestle with. Are you willing to speak sharply, cuttingly, boldly, truthfully, lovingly to those in your sphere of influence who have rejected Christianity, who are denying God's revealed word? What is very clear, objectively true, is his will for our lives, who are unrepentant and sinning. Walther says, the law aims at the heart, at the spirit in the man. So if you handle the word of God rightly, trusting it does its work, not trying to assuage it with a, with a little bit of gospel here and gospel there, Which, to be honest, come on, you don't speak those bits of gospel when you're laying down the law for your hearer's sake, but for your own, to make you feel better, to make you feel less like a jerk. If you keep the the sweetness out of what God means to be stern, then Walther notes that your hearers will fail. But if you keep that sweetness out of what God intends to be stern. Well, Walther notes here that your hearers will fall on their knees at home and confess, I am not as God would have me to be. I have to become a different person. There is so much wisdom in Walther's words, guys. Apply this to your fear, your trepidation of ruining holiday gatherings with the truth of Scripture in an attempt 
to save lost souls. Apply this to all of that. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. God doesn't tell you to preach the law in order to make people godly, Walther says. The law makes no one godly. Rather, when the law begins to take effect, the person begins to fume and to rage against God. He hates the preacher who has shouted the law into his heart, feeling that he cannot slip off its coils. The chains are on and they're too tight. When this happens, you'll sometimes hear people, they'll say, I'll never go to that church again. Why, that preacher, he strikes terror into my soul. Why would I want to go back there? I prefer to, to attend the services over at Reverend So-and-So's. He makes you feel good inside, you know? When you listen to him, you realize what a good person you really are. Man, guys, people have been eating poop brownies for a real long time, haven't they? That's exactly the culture we're living in today. Everyone's fooling themselves into thinking that they're good people. We're all starting from the presupposition that we're essentially good, and then we get bad. No. Sorry to say, and I'm not sorry to say, it's the truth. We are essentially bad, through and through, from the beginning. All of us, conceived in sin. Sinful from before you were ever even born. There's only one way to become good. Christ Jesus. And before we get to Christ, we have to acknowledge the condition we're in. We have to be real and acknowledge that we're sinners, that we have fallen from where we should be, that we have to become a different person if we want to escape this. And that's where the gospel comes in. Walter, Walter replies to that, that idea of going to Reverend so-and-so's to be told you're a good person. He said, yeah, alas, down in hell, these same people will want to take revenge on the preacher when they see how that that false prophet got them thrown into the pit. You don't want to disrupt family relations, eh? You want you want to be the grandma, the grandma version of the of the, the feel-good preacher? That's what you want? You want your home to be known for its poop brownies? How they smell so good coming out of the oven? Why? Well, let me tell you why. Because it makes you feel better. Because it, it keeps you out of the arena and you get nice little accolades from your grandkids who love Thanksgiving at grandma's house because it makes them feel so good even when they've thrown off the truth of God's word and they're living in unrepentant sin through and through and everyone at the dinner table is just accepting of it. Man, pastor, you're really on this thing about Thanksgiving. Yeah, I am, because we're talking about real human beings who will suffer real consequences, and no Christian, none of us, should be able to stomach the idea of putting our own temporal peace above our neighbor's eternal peace, eternal salvation. Not in general, and especially not when the reason for gathering is predicated upon a national holiday created to give thanks to the Christian God. That's absurd. We are served up on a silver platter an opportunity to tell all of our heathenistic and hedonistic family and friends who come to our dinner table, this is how it is. Okay, so they don't come back next year. Are you willing to leave them worse off if it means you could snatch them out of the fire, if it means you could save the souls of those who are wandering away from the truth. Are you willing? I would say thanks be to God. Let's give thanksgiving to God for an opportunity to speak truth to a bunch of people who are lost. And I know we all have this in every single one of our families because. We're all sinners. 
See, the way of, of low visibility, as they called it in Machen's day, it's nothing other than the throwing off of love, the throwing off of love of neighbor in service to love of self. Christians, we are called to serve our neighbors. For the Christian, everything is about the other person. It's not about us, even temporal peace. All right, so... We got a smattering of dead theologians already in the show today. Why not one more? When you think about whether you've been living as a critic, an armchair quarterback, quarterbacking the man in the arena, or or whether maybe you are the man in the arena and you're considering this, how to guard yourself against becoming that critic, perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous quote will be helpful. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As Christians, we die to self, and we live to serve our neighbors in Christ. We, we love our neighbors because Christ loved us, and we love them with his love. And so if you're staying out of the arena because it's going to mean speaking the law, which might cause someone to rage and fume at you, well, then who's still alive? You are. That's a decision to keep your mouth shut and to keep the temporal peace is a decision based on the old Adam's desire to serve another God, the God of self. Sure. We say it's about our neighbor. Yeah, we say we, we, we know all the right things to make us feel better about we're, we're serving them. We're gaining an audience for the gospel. But we're not so foolish to believe that at the end of the day. We keep the peace for ourselves. We avoid conflict for ourselves. We don't want to get into it with our unbelieving family member because we want them to like us and to have a pleasant time at Thanksgiving dinner. That becomes more important than their eternal salvation. We are selfish. Indeed, some may say, Walther says, that this is not the way for a Lutheran minister to preach. What are you saying, Pastor Bramwell? You're such a mean guy. And you're, advocate, you're advocating that all of us become mean guys. No, but in reality, Walther says, it is the way a Lutheran pastor should preach. In fact, he could not be a Lutheran preacher if he did not preach the law in this way. Thank you, Walther. The law must precede the preaching of the gospel. First, you need Moses, then Christ. Or, first John the Baptist, then Christ. At first, the people will exclaim, how terrible all this is. But then, now, and Walter's speaking about it in the sermon, but the same thing applies in our daily lives as we speak this to our neighbors. But then the preacher, the Christian speaker, with a glow in his eyes, arrives at the gospel. This cheers the hearts of the people. Now they understand why the pastor had preached the preceding remarks. He wanted to make them see how terribly contaminated with sin they are and how desperately they need the gospel. When you're teaching, Walther says, you must adopt the same method. When you're explaining the law, never ever add gospel elements except in conclusion. Even little children, little kids, need to experience anguish and terror, he says. The reason so many people assume that they are really good Christians is because their parents reared them to be miserable Pharisees. Their parents never made them aware of the fact that they are poor, miserable sinners. A person may have fallen into the most dreadful sins, but if he's been brought up properly, When he hears the law preached, he will say to himself, sure enough, I am an awful sinner. Yes, that Pharisee has sunk even lower. See, it's much tougher, Walther says, to convert such Pharisees. Converting Pharisees is a far more difficult task than converting persons who acknowledge their sin. And with this, We see, friends, what we're really dealing with when we want to get out of the arena and be the critic. 
when we don't want to make a bold confession, when we want to opt for a false peace and take the congenial path of political correctness, when we're given the opportunity to fight for the faith in truth and love, or stepping out of the fray and minimizing the law by adding elements of gospel is the chief sin of our day. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. As they tried to say that breaking the fifth commandment was simply only murdering, physically murdering, not having anger in the heart. They tried to minimize it. They tried to soften it. They tried to gospelize the law. So let us meet this sharp word head on and drop to our knees, dear saints, in repentance. We are not being how we are supposed to be. And that's why our culture is in the state it's in today. We, we reared a bunch of miserable Pharisees who think they're great Christians. Now today I've aimed to equip your mind in the truth of God's word, not to treat you roughly, no, but to risk leaving you worse off than before so that we wouldn't deceive ourselves any longer, but see our desperate need for Jesus. Because now we've arrived at the part of the show, the conclusion, where I can turn us all to that sweet sugar that we've been wanting to hear. To that guilt of not being in the arena, of making nice with our neighbors who are in denial of their sin, it comes from real sin on our own part. That we know that we have committed because the word works and you feel the sting of guilt over your sin in your hearts. It's this sin this very sin, dear saints, that that Christ died to forgive. Be healed by the Lord of life and the true giver of peace. Jesus didn't sit by as a critic of our fallen race, but he entered into the arena as a man, and he did not fail to valiantly put everything on the line to save you from your sin. And he knows the triumph of high achievement. As he won you back from the devil, he paid the cost of your sins, and he has made you his. You are well. Amen. And thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. We'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.